looking at my friends and saying, hey, we're we're done for the night, everybody's going home, and then eating 10 painkillers at once, and my friend just looking at me horrified, like, dude, you're gonna die, and me saying, no, this is fine, I'm good, like, I was so disillusioned to what was going on, because I didn't know, and it was just so dependent on this thing that if I didn't have it, I had anxiety. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening everyone. You are listening to Don't Be Afraid to Talk podcast with James. If you are listening for the first time, you are welcome. Talking and listening is key for growth and I hope our stories will bring us together and we can draw inspiration from each other. Conversation will include topics such as mental and physical health, trauma and its effect, suicidal thoughts, recovery and well-being. We will continue to raise awareness and offer a different perspective a mindset or an idea that could inspire you to take charge of your well-being and to grow as a human being. Thank you for joining us today. I'm here with Brooke who's going to share with you her story with addiction. If you're listening today, have an open mind and we hope you can learn something from this episode that you can take away. Hello, how are you? (laughs) Hi, James. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so as he mentioned, I'm Brooke. I live in uh, Dallas, Texas and struggled uh, with addiction for for a bit until uh, getting getting clean and no longer dependent. Uh, I think 18, 18 months now. So, mm. feeling good about yeah, it. Yeah, hey, that's good. 18 months is good. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we get going in our conversation, we're just going to play an icebreaker, a quick one-for-one game. Um, the way it works is I'll give you a word, and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's do it. So, the first word is fear. Relapse. Coach. Soccer. <laughs> and time. Not enough. Regrets. None. And the last one, knowledge. Power. Super. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's all the that's all the questions. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's yeah. the hard part. All done. Yeah. Hard Sorry, part my done. dogs. <laughs> um, can you just tell us a little bit about your your childhood growing up? Yeah, uh, I, I've born born and raised in Texas. I am the oldest of three. Um, my dad is Iranian. And my mom is American. Um, and so I grew up in a multicultural household. My parents are still married to this day. Um, you know, there was love there. Um, sometimes it didn't necessarily feel like it. You know, my mom, my mom growing up wasn't always the best at expressing her emotions. Um, my dad, on the other hand, is like a very sensitive guy. And so he's, he gets emotional often, but because he grew up in a different culture, I think there was some struggles with that. Um, but overall, like a really, really great childhood close with my family. Um, grew up around all of my family. You know, my, my dad's mom would come to the States and stay for a while. Uh, my mom's mom is local. My grandpa, my paternal grandpa died before I was born, so I've never known him. But mm. overall, a, a good childhood. Me and my dad would have, like, daddy-daughter dates where we'd go have lunch and go shopping together and um, stuff like that. My parents worked really hard so that we didn't have to go to, like, daycare or anything. They would work opposite schedules. So one yeah, of us would yeah. be home with us at all times. But 
I grew oh, yeah. up. Yeah, so it was good, you know. I grew up with uh, two younger brothers. Um, <laughs> one of them is like. Uh, I don't get along as well with my brother who's <laughs> two years younger than me than I do with my baby brother who's six years younger than me. We're both pretty similar, me and the younger one. But I think That's probably because, why you... We're also you, both cancers, so we're just like similar <laughs> in all regards. Mm. Um, I grew up with a lot of pressure from my parents uh, to be successful at things and and yes. to do a good job at everything. And that was really difficult. I, I always tell a story my dad tells, like, um, and growing up, I thought it was the sweetest thing in the world. But before I was born, my dad blew out his knee and then he, mm. had, he lost some fingers on his um, right hand in an accident. And so he tells me all the time, like growing up, he would tell me that I was his savior before I was born. He was going to kill himself, and then I was born, and he could he couldn't. And it sounds yeah. so sweet, and a, beautiful, right? He had it's a like reason. his reason for living. Yeah, but that's a lot of pressure to put on a kid, man. Like you can't expect for me to be your reason to live. That that yes. puts me in the category where I feel like I have to be perfect at everything. And mm. that's a, that's a lot of pressure. And it I did, is. you know, I did well in school, straight A's all the time. Um, and I, this is the other story where I start to see how some of my issues formed a little bit. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the pressure from my dad to to be perfect, and you know, his reason for living, and feeling like I always had to be perfect, and so like success always equated love to me. You know, um, like mm. your achievements that's how you get love because you do such a great job and you get praised for doing a great job. But then if you have shortcomings, it's, it's not great. So I remember when I was younger, uh, you know, you get your report card and I got mine and I always made straight A's. Well, this one semester or six weeks or however they did it, I got one B and oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And then my middle brother never passed his classes. <laughs> he was always failing, and the same it was the same semester. I got one B. This guy barely passed all his classes. <laughs> I got in trouble. He got praised. So it just it yes. just gave me that perception of man. If I'm not perfect, then I'm in mm. trouble. Then I don't get you know the praise. And did you ever feel like? Did you notice that growing up? Like you can see it, you can see it now, but did you notice that when you're growing up that this is what's happening, or did you just like have that instilling you to be good? Uh, it was that instance, like that one scenario. I remember bringing it to my mom's attention because I was very upset, and so then my mom like tried to overcorrect, and then and like went and bought me a new outfit or something. Oh, yes, um, because she she kind of like recognized it uh but i didn't really realize it until i got over and started going to therapy because it's just like this generational trauma that you have that you don't realize um and so now as i've learned i've been able to talk to my parents about it and i like brought it to my dad i was like look man this is something we <laughs> yeah, talk I, I have about something to and <laughs> Like, we need to really air this out so I can process it. And my dad pretty much was like, it's just because we knew you were going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, but you gave me no, no, no room to make a mistake. Yes, yes. So it was just, it was, it was a lot. And in my family for a very long time, like my cousins and everything were boys. And so like my first like the first grandkid that was born is my cousin. He's he's a boy, and I'm two years younger than him. So you have him as a male, and then me as the first girl, and then after that, it's like a ton mm. of boys. Before we even ever had another girl, I think I was like 16. <laughs> so I was the only girl for a very long time, which again, more yeah. pressure. <laughs> so it, it it gets a little complicated mm. in that regard. Yeah, you know? I, I think as parents. Well, the generation he grew up in, he probably didn't know any better. So he he didn't. And my dad, you know, he 
my dad grew up in, and we talked about this recently. He grew up in, like, my dad is an incredible soccer player. He still plays soccer. He's like 65 and still plays soccer every Sunday. And he wanted to play soccer. And that was like his goal. I'm going to be a professional yeah. soccer player or whatever. And he loved it. And as he was playing soccer and trying to play on the team, his dad went to the coach and said, my son is not to play soccer. He needs to focus on his studies. And if you let him keep playing soccer, then I will hurt oh, you Jesus. and your family. And so my dad never Want. got to do the things that he loved because his dad was like, you have to go to college. Academic. Period. I don't care if you want to play soccer. I don't care if you're good. You have to go to college and you have to excel academically, which again, the pressure that was put on me was a learned behavior. Mm. My dad wasn't like as aggressive with me. My, my dad treated me differently than my brothers. He was a lot gentler with me because I was his daughter and his whole life yeah, yeah. for living, you know, and my dad grew up where his dad used to like beat him. Beatings for everything. You just beat him like nonstop. My dad never laid a finger on me. Um, I, I can't say the same for my middle <laughs> yeah. brother. You know, my dad was pretty yeah. brutal with him. But he was never like that with my baby brother either. I think my middle brother just frustrated him to the point he didn't know what to do. And, you know, he, he, he was doing it. what yeah. he knew. And that's why I tell my parents all the time, like, you guys did the best you could with what you had. And I don't blame you. I'm not angry no. for anything. You know, you didn't know better. And they they do a lot better now with my niece and, you know, their grandbabies. They, they've changed so much. And they're so open yeah. to listening to what I say about stuff like this and changing those behaviors and, and learning That's and it. doing it's better. The, it's the awareness that comes in because they're just repeating what they know and what they picked up growing up. So it, there's no... There's no... Uh, you can never blame them, you know, because they didn't, they didn't, uh, exactly. they didn't know any better. So they just knew what they, they're just repeating what they knew. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah it's, exactly it's when someone is. else, like in your case, where you've learned what was happening, you can speak to them and they'd be like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> at least they're welcoming to it and they can, they acknowledge that. That's honestly like been the most refreshing part about this this entire mm. journey uh into sobriety and like mental health you know I, I i struggled with depression uh for a while and being able to have these difficult conversations with my parents and them being receptive yes. to them i think that's a game changer i can't imagine trying to have these conversations with them and them shutting down completely mm. and saying i'm sorry that's not yeah. reality like and it's a little more difficult for my dad. You know, we had this conversation this past weekend and my dad's like, but that's not true. And that's not what happened. And I'm like, but dad, that's how I felt. You can't, you can't tell me my feelings are invalid. <laughs> yeah. I understand it's not your reality, but that's how that came across to me. And once I explained that, then he was like a lot more receptive and, and willing to mm, listen. Mm. So. Yes. Yes. That's, that's good. It's very important to have that open relationship yeah, they're they're yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really are. I love my parents. That, that's good. And they're they're unique in their own ways, and they're funny. They're just very different, honestly. Different people. Totally different people. My mom is like so much warmer now that she's gotten older than she was when I was a kid, and I just I love being around them. I can honestly say, like, my mom's like my best friend. I tell her everything, and. I love every minute of it. She's a, yeah. she's a good lady. And when did you, um, like, how did your addiction begin? What happened? Yeah, so... You, you have um, this race, straight A school, <laughs> time in school, <laughs> perfect student. And uh, what happened? <laughs> uh, oh, so I wasn't a perfect student, I'll tell you that. when I, When I was in high school... Uh, my freshman year, I got caught drinking on campus, uh, drinking alcohol. So it's like vodka or something. We had snuck it onto campus and we got busted for it. And um, 
I got sent to an alternative school. You know, they basically expelled me and put me in a different school. And I finished out my freshman year. My grades tanked. It was like last two weeks of my freshman year. Destroyed my grades. Like, all, like decimated them. And so I came back. I had failed some classes. And I was going to have to retake some courses. But I was overall a good student. And I talked to those teachers. And they were like, we'll bump your grades up. <laughs> We'll, we'll let you pass. I was like, you're the best. Cool. I don't have to retake courses. Love it. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that, especially like my French teacher. She, she was an angel. Her and I are friends to this day, but um, because of the person that I mm. was um, and how well I did in school, I'm, I'm grateful that they didn't let that determine the outcome of my, you know, high school career. So that was the first incident <laughs> when I was a freshman, busted, got expelled. I came back. I worked really hard to get my grades back up, um, and I did, and I graduated with honors and all that good stuff, and I got into a good college. But uh, when I was, like, a sophomore, so I was, like, 15, I started working at a country club, and the country club didn't really have a lot of rules for us. Mm. And so they would leave 15, 16, 17-year-old kids there with alcohol everywhere. And I'm in high school, and we just were drinking all the time. Just didn't matter. Um, and so, like, drinking became a, a big thing for a bit. Uh, I slowed down a little once I left that job. And I had started to experiment with pot because all my friends are smoking weed. So I'm just like, oh, I'll try it. I didn't like it, so I didn't really do it. Um, at all. It wasn't a thing I enjoyed. And then um, I got in college. I would drink sometimes, but wasn't too bad. I was drinking frequently mm. enough for it to be a bit concerning. I was working at a restaurant. I was a bartender. We'd get off work. We'd go have drinks. And then I think I had like dental surgery or something. Mm. Um, and, the, and the girl I was dating at the time like had tried a ton of different drugs and was totally open to trying them and doing them. And uh, I took a class in college, and I think this is really where my mindset kind of turned, but I took a class in college called Victimless Crime. Mm. And, like, I, I always try to be pretty, like, straight straight edge and not get in trouble. Like, at this this point in my life, even now, I've never been arrested, which I'm grateful for. But I always try not to get in trouble with the law because I grew up being told I should be a lawyer. You're great at arguing. Yeah. From fourth grade, my career was determined you need to go to law school and you need to be a lawyer and this is the path for you. And so like, I always had that in my head. Don't mess mm. up with the law. <laughs> so I didn't, thankfully. Um, but I was dating this girl. I was in college, took this victimless crime class. And the course was talking about like gambling and prostitution and drugs and how like the government kind of regulates those things to control people. Mm. And so then I was just like, Drugs aren't that bad then. Like, we're taught so much that drugs are really a bad thing, and they're not that bad. Yeah. Um, and so then I started experimenting more with drugs, and, you know, I tried cocaine and, you know, Adderall, prescription painkillers, um, ecstasy, like, college, whatever. I was trying all kinds mm. of stuff. Mushrooms. Um, I think those are really about it there's some pot there there was one night we were kind of partying and i had taken painkillers i was drinking i was doing ecstasy i was smoking pot i was doing coke like same night just all of these chemicals in my yeah, body it sounds a lot. the fact that i made yeah the fact that i made it out alive is insane to me um and truthfully it gets much worse later <laughs> and we'll get into that but like i tried coke i didn't like it so it wasn't something i was doing i did do it a little bit with my ex because I would tell her, like, I didn't like it. And I remember one night I said something about, like, I don't want to do coke anymore. Like, my mom, I was, like, crying. I was, like, my mom would be so disappointed mm. in these choices I'm making. I don't want to do coke anymore. And my ex was just, like, well, I'm going to get it. I'm going to do it anyways, and I'm going to do it in front of you. So if you don't want to do it, oh, well, I'm still doing it. And I was, like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, Coke's like one of those things, if you've ever done it and somebody's doing it in front of you, you're not really going to say no to it, <laughs> uh, whether you like it or not, and I never tempted. enjoyed it, but it's just there, and you're just like, yeah, whatever, I'll do the Coke, but her and I developed a really bad painkiller addiction, like, that's that's 
been like the one thing in my life that's been the most out of control. Painkillers. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, obviously the rest of it is out of control and you shouldn't be doing mm. all of these things, you know, but I genuinely believe some people can have a healthy relationship with drugs and alcohol. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, painkillers. Yeah. So I had like dental surgery and we took some painkillers and I was like, oh, this is cool. And then we just kept doing it every day. Kept taking became the same painkillers. Yeah. Yeah, every day. And then I became very physically addicted to them. So I would try to stop and couldn't go, you know, a day without them. It was just so miserable. And was this um, prescription painkillers or was this over-the-counter? Yeah. Yep. Prescription painkillers like hydrocodones. And how were you able to get so many? (laughs) Uh, So when you can't get them from your doctors, you go to the street. Okay. (laughs) And uh, at this time, this was like early 2000s, maybe close to 2010. Mm. So they were they were around more frequently than they are now. They were a lot easier to, to get. get yeah. I, I'd say, yeah, it's a lot easier to get your hands on them back then. Um, and so we were just, we would burn through phone numbers of dealers just texting all day, all day, trying to get some, trying to get some, trying to find out if anybody had them. And anxious when we couldn't get them and it was just it wasn't good and truthfully it wasn't good. and at this time obviously you weren't in pain anymore no, no. okay well not not because of anything medical my my back was really messed up because i had two bulging discs in my back uh at this point and i didn't know this but i would wake up every day miserable in pain and not understand why, why. Okay. i couldn't go to the doctor because I'm bartending at a restaurant. I don't have insurance. And uh, my mind, you know, young and naive and stupid, I'm like, well, I'm in pain. I'll just take these painkillers and I'll be fine for the rest of the day. And I'll just keep chugging along. Mm. And I went through that cycle over and over. And I was in pain if I didn't take the drugs. So it's, you know, a, a common thing for opioid users, you know, heroin users, you get dope sick and you just want to feel well. And it happens all the time. So your body's so physically addicted to these painkillers and your brain chemistry is changing. And so if you don't have them, you feel like you're going to die. And your brain convinces you that if you don't have them, you are going to die. Uh, because you've changed your entire brain chemistry and your body just, mm. you're so physically addicted to them. And the withdrawals are miserable. You feel like you have the flu. You're sweaty. You're cold. You're nauseous. Your stomach is upset. Um, you can't breathe. You have a headache. You can't sleep at night, but you're exhausted during the day. And it's just, it's it's not fun. And, and was it a long <laughs> period of time like for you from when you started taking painkillers to the point where you started contacting everyone to try and get your hands on them was it like did that happen very quick yeah it was a very very fast process and i think it was i think it was um i think it got worse because me and my ex were so codependent on each Mm. other and so we would push each other quite frequently like if i didn't want to take them uh, she would throw a fit and she, she struggled with bipolar and wouldn't take her bipolar medication. And so she was self-medicating and, um, it was just always this vicious cycle of us mm. pushing each other to get the medication and going out of our way to get the medication. And then there was a while where, you know, we had a pretty consistent hookup on it and like our connect was a good one and they always had them and so we would always go and get them and it didn't matter we always had them so that we didn't feel sick because if we didn't have our drugs we couldn't function through the day and i was naive and i didn't understand it then um and it again it it got much worse later in life um but yeah when you were taking all this medication, like what sort of feeling did it give you? Yeah, so 
it's like did you feel you can just do anything yeah. you want like when yeah, you're up in yeah, clouds yeah, and... yeah, yeah. so so my grandpa uh before he passed he he would joke about how painkillers are like the white man's speed um because when you're <laughs> when you're physically addicted to them um you have to take them to get out of bed and to be able to do your everyday normal tasks and so mm. i was so addicted to them that I would get up, I would take them, I would drink a Red Bull, and I would go on with my day. And I felt like I was just zooming, and I was good to go, and I was firing, and I was more focused. And that's not the case, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> uh, you just get this, like, kind of euphoric feeling, and everything's just a little bit better. Or at least it feels that way. Um, and would you take them in the morning, in the evening? All day. <laughs> didn't matter. Uh, oftentimes, I yeah. didn't want to take them in the evening because I was never a fan of like taking them and going to sleep because you waste your high. So it would be like take them in the morning and then take them midday, and then that was it. So. And uh, how was your other friends? And like, did anyone know you were doing this? Yeah, <laughs> a lot of my friends knew knew I was doing it. I don't think a lot of people knew. Um, how bad the extent. yeah uh, again it got much worse later uh this was like my first <laughs> kind of uh delve <laughs> into it um you know and then i i left that job bartending and um i was so you you're working in a bar when you're taking yeah yeah so me and my me you... and my ex-fiance worked together in a, in a restaurant and we were both bartenders um and so we were just yeah Probably, probably not a good place to be. <laughs> no, not at all. No, not really. at all. Um, but yes, and then we were like experimenting with drugs, and um, I left that job and started working in a retail store, and got like insurance, and was working full time, and was like really starting to see everything kind of get a little bit better, get a little, you know. Yeah. I was managing a team. I was working on my career. I had dropped out of school. Like I said, me me and my ex were very codependent, and uh, she didn't like that I was going to school, so I dropped out of college, and I tried mm. to find a career. Um, so I was working at this, like, retail store. And um, uh, her and I had started to kind of get a little more distant. I had been trying mm. to over the years. She had kids, and it made it more difficult. And I, like, I, Hard, I, yeah. it was awful. And at one point... We had talked about me moving back in with my parents so I could go back to school. And then I remember it's probably the most manipulative thing ever, but I had told her that and we had talked about it and it was a good decision we made. I was going to live back with my parents, save money, go back to school. And we were on the same page. And then one of her kids, like her kids come up to me and they were like, uh, Ricky, why don't you love us anymore? And I was like, I'm sorry. Oh, why do you say, well, <laughs> I was like, why why do you say that I do love you guys? And they were just like, "Well, mom said that you don't love us because you're moving out." And I was like, "Guess I'm not moving." <laughs> so I ended up not moving, you know. It's just a very toxic relationship because we we're both addicts and, you know, mental health struggles and it just it wasn't good to to be honest. Yeah. Um and so then I started working at this new job and her and I, you know, we were living together, but we weren't working together anymore. And I think that's where the biggest issue was. We live together, we work together, everything is together. And so when I stopped working with her, I started to kind of get some independence back and mm. uh, kind of ended that relationship and then fell right into another one, <laughs> like immediately, like this girl that I was working with there and she, she was married at the time. Um, to a man, and I don't know, whatever that situation was, but her and I started dating, and uh, then I then I stopped doing drugs. It was, at that point, something she wanted because her father had gone to prison for selling cocaine. Did you stop the drug at a time? Sorry. No, go ahead. Is that, be is that because you were no longer in your other relationship that was kind of... A little bit of both. Where drug was around a lot more a little, than... A little bit of both. So I had gotten out of that toxic relationship, you know, with my ex-fiance. 
and um my then girlfriend at the time her dad Mm. had gone to prison and died in prison uh for selling cocaine so at that time i was just doing pills and cocaine and then i stopped doing cocaine because she was very uncomfortable i was selling it it was like not good and she was just like i cocaine's a no for me and then being around somebody who didn't really do drugs she like smoked pot and drank but she didn't do drugs like i did drugs and i would Mm. go to work and i would have taken so many pills that i would throw up at work and she would come and help me at work because we worked together she would come help me at work not knowing that i had taken so many pills that i was throwing up (laughs) and so i finally was just like i'm not going to do this anymore i'm going to be better so that we can be together and we can have a happy healthy relationship um, so I stopped doing drugs, um, just kind of quit it. Didn't deal with any of the other stuff. I just was like, whatever, I'm done. Um, mm. and stopped doing them. And then, uh, you know, years later stuff had gotten pretty bad with her and I, and I had started doing drugs again. And at this time it was, you went back to, mm-hmm. and at this time it was like, occasionally keep in mind, my back is still messed up. So I'm miserable and I'm working at this retail store and I'm unloading trucks heavy stuff lifting stuff all day every day and so my back had just gotten so much worse and was destroyed and the stress of that that I finally was like all right whatever and I was like taking oxy which was not anything I'd ever taken before um because I was just did hydrocodones I took oxy one day at work early in the morning I took two of them and I think they were like 60 milligrams or something and I'm sitting there at work like about to pass out throwing up terrified I'm gonna die and I'm just like like praying please don't let me die and i was so scared and so i was like all right Mm. i'm not doing it again and her and i yeah and her and i split and then i had back surgery and that was probably the worst um because that's what started restarted everything to where it got to the worst point it, it was at um and me and this girl like the ending of our relationship was so messy and toxic and she was like trying to commit suicide so I wouldn't leave my house and like slicing her wrist open because I had started dating another girl at the time because I for a long time serial monogamous one relationship is getting close to ending I've got another one lined up and I just kept through that pattern uh and so I was getting ready for the next one and she knew about it and she was very unhappy and tried to kill herself in my house and uh finally got to the point where i was like i can't i you know called her mom and her best friend and we're like dude she's super suicidal you got to fix this and her mom was just like can you just put your love life on hold and save my daughter and i was like no you need to save your own daughter i can't do this um and so i finally got her to move out and um i had back surgery and that was like really the, the key point was when i had back surgery my mom came to take care of me, and we were living in my parents' house at the time. My parents moved mm-hmm. to Oklahoma, but we moved into their house, and we were paying their mortgage. And so my mom came to take care of me while I had surgery, which seems crazy because I've got somebody living in the house with with me, but she refused. And so um, I have this surgery. My mom comes, and she won't even let my mom stay there. And it's a five-bedroom house. And so that was like a big problem for me. But before I had my surgery, the doctor prescribed me 90 hydrocodones. That was a month before my surgery. And then a month later, I had surgery, and I got prescribed another 90 hydrocodones. So within a month, I have 180 of these pills. Why so many? (laughs) No idea. No idea. Uh, Granted, my surgery was painful, and I needed them after the surgery. Mm. But the before the surgery, I think, was part of the problem. Because I was in pain and I was miserable and we couldn't get the surgery set until a month later, but it still shouldn't have been like that. Um, and, and prior to the surgery, um, did your parents ever know you were taking any of the experimental stuff you were doing? And they had known that I had tried some stuff, but they didn't know no, the depth of it. It was... Yeah. Okay. Totally. Okay. No idea. At all. Um, but yeah, so... And then after your surgery, then was, you were given, you ended up 180. It was game over, honestly. It, Thank you. Game over. That was it. That, and how many, and would you, like, obviously at the start, 
after the surgery you needed them and then after that you just continued oh. and were you going back to the doctor looking for more yeah and say look yeah I'm, the, do I'm still the in doctor pain. refilled it for me once after after that so then another 90 right uh and then there were no more refills um and then i went to my primary care physician and got her to write me a prescription not nearly the same milligram or quantity uh as previous mm. um and then it was just finding drug dealers in the streets and and how many were you taking a day at this time i did like when you when you had your big 180 at the start were you taking it wasn't it wasn't bad i think the numbers were pretty low uh i mm. think maybe three four five a day um towards the towards the, the end point before i got sober uh 18 months ago i think the most i took in one day was 28 um 28 painkillers yeah yeah so uh during this first point it wasn't as extreme right so i was taking them kind mm. of as prescribed if i was in pain i would take one a little more responsible uh and then that you start to develop a tolerance. And so that number went from taking one at a time to two at a time, mm. three at a time, four at a time, you know, until the worst point I was taking 10 at once. So, and would you, would you take 10 and just go by your day as normal? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And did you ever add alcohol to that as well? Um, <laughs> later so after the surgery it was really just the pills and i was taking them pretty heavily and uh, i couldn't do anything without them if i had to go on a trip i'd make sure i had pills with me uh i would try to taper down i even told you know my ex-girlfriend at the time hey help me taper down let's get me off of this and it never stuck i would just be like dude where are the pills i can't do it um and i would just get them all the time and it didn't matter and i was just taking them uh, by the handfuls and she 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 tried she didn't want me to take as many she was pretty like adamant like I don't want you taking three at a time I don't want you taking five at a time whatever whatever but she also saw how miserable and in pain I was and so she didn't mm. really try to stop it uh, or control it and it got like to, to the point where we had a conversation I was like does it bother you the amount of pills I take and her response was like no I am never going to say anything about how many pills you're taking because I don't ever want you to say anything about the beer I drink or the weed I smoke. And I was like, all right. And not like... That's the agreement. <laughs> yeah, and like not not knowing then what I know now, like that's codependency for sure. Like that's two, two addicts that don't want to... They don't want to do what they do, but there's no one to stop them. You know, so exactly. if you're going to take so it, gonna, I'm going to take yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, that relationship ended and it destroyed me truthfully like it, it was really bad um before we had broken up we were we were going to counseling um and so that i'm super grateful for that because after we broke up and it ended so poorly i got back into therapy and that's more so the catalyst and what helped me get sober was getting back into therapy and i would have never gone to therapy if it wasn't for her and i'm forever grateful for her um, um, was it her that said you have to go like let's go to therapy together or you have to go and let me know how you get on <laughs> no so when we were to, we were together there was some infidelity and so then we started going to couples counseling to work through it and mm. um that was like the big push like let's go to couples counseling and, and work through things so that we can get to a better place and then after that there was infidelity again and that kind of really destroyed me more more so um <laughs> just because i i felt kind of like blindsided because we had been mm. working to to be better and we didn't get better and, and then i i was really like hurt by it and i went through like a ton of emotions with it and you know blaming myself and now self-blame yeah you know it's my fault but after therapy and all that i realized none of it had anything to do with me we both weren't in a good place. I made a lot of mistakes because of my addiction. I didn't help her with anything that needed to be done around the house. And, you know, wasn't a supportive mm. partner. I wasn't a good partner. Like, 
an addict is not a good partner because our main focus is getting our fix and how are we going to get it and when are we going to get it, right? Um, and that was always my focus. Didn't matter what and I did. And did you ever, did you ever know you had a problem? Oh yeah, absolutely. And did you deny that you had a problem or you just didn't really care that much that you had a problem? I didn't really care that much because I felt like it was manageable because I still had a job. I still paid my bills. I was still doing all the things I needed to do, or at least I thought I needed to mm. do. Um, and it's just so you 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 kind of felt like you always had it under control. Yeah, I was functioning. I was a functioning addict for for a long time, and so it's really hard. Uh, and I learned this later. It's like really hard to understand that you have a problem when you're continuing to pay your bills on time and you go to work every day and you get up. And, yes, yes, yeah. You know, and after again, you know, we broke up. I go to therapy, and then I'm working and i've got a friend great so grateful to this friend because she she would see me at work like falling asleep at my desk like not good would not be good because mm. i would just be so high and she came to me with a very gentle approach and that approach was what do you want out of life is this what you want forever and i was like no i hate this I hate being dependent on it. I hate feeling like I can't do anything without my pills. This is not okay. And so slowly, she started chipping away at it and chipping away and chipping away. And, you know, like I said, it got worse. I was drinking with my friends all night, doing cocaine, and then popping pills because I couldn't sleep or I felt like shit the next day because I stayed up all night doing cocaine. And it was just over and over and over. We were doing this all the time. And it it's no way to live. That had to weigh you down a lot. Like your body had to be... It, it, you're abusing it. You. <laughs> I was. I was. I, I was not, not good to myself. Um... It was really, really hard on me, hard on me mentally. Um, you know, it destroyed everything. Truthfully, it destroyed everything. And I didn't think twice about it. There were times where I called my best friend and say, dude, can you come spend the night? I'm too scared to fall asleep because I knew I'd taken so many pills or out with friends and drinking all night and doing coke all night mm. and then looking at my friends and saying, hey, we're, we're done for the night. Everybody's going home. And then eating 10 painkillers at once and my friend just looking at me horrified like dude you're gonna die and me saying no this is fine i'm good like i was so <laughs> disillusioned to what was going on because i didn't know and it was just so dependent on this thing that if i didn't have it i had anxiety and i had to find it and that's all i could think about and i couldn't get started i couldn't go throughout my day without it and i would text all my dealers and be like, do you have it? Do you have it? Do you have it? And if they didn't have it, I'd be so stressed out and anxious and I couldn't focus on anything else. Like that was it. That was my number one. That's all I cared about was getting that next fix. And I wasn't. And what do you think? S sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just, gonna, I was just yeah. numbing. I was numbing myself to everything. There's no joy, no pain, nothing. And um, what do you think was causing that? Uh, I think it was at, at the t at the time. Uh, obviously, like now, you know, what you probably know what's causing that. But at the time, what do you think? Like, were you trying to run away from something? Or it was it it had gotten worse because I was trying to run away from things, and I didn't want to feel anything. Especially after my relationship ended, I was so distraught and so upset and so hurt, and I just couldn't take it. Um, and so I was just like. I don't want to feel anything. This makes the feelings go away. And this is cool. And then I was so physically addicted to them that I couldn't stop even if I wanted to. And my body just, the withdrawals were so bad. I, I don't wish it on my worst enemy. And I tried. I tried to quit. I would go a day, two days, a week, two weeks. Mm. And then I'd relapse. And it was just like over and over and over. And my friends like saw that happening. 
and you know finally I was just like I can't I can't do this anymore and my brother told me um I'm going to start randomly drug testing you and if you fail you cannot come around my children and that was hard and it was what I needed to hear because I was mm. like, all right, this is serious, man. I cannot be in those kids' lives. I love them. And I was like two, two and a half months, two and a half months sober. And I called my doctor and I got a refill on my hydrocodone prescription because at this point I didn't have any drug dealers on my phone anymore. They all knew. I was blacklisted. Nobody would sell to me. I didn't have numbers. <laughs> I couldn't get them. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't get them. And I emailed my doctor and was like, hey, I need a refill. And that was like my last line that was going to sell them. Because um, keep in mind, I was spending over $100 a day on pills. Well over. Um, and I was going to sell them. And I got them. And I ended up taking 30 of them in two days. And I told my friend, the one that had like chipped away at it, was like, is this what you want for the mm -hmm. rest of your life? They'd see me two and a half months sober. They're like, this is great. I love it. And I wasn't like fully sober. I was still drinking and smoking weed. Um, but I wasn't taking pills and doing you, coke. You yeah, I was like, I'm not taking yeah. pills. I'm not doing coke. This is great. Pills are really my problem. The rest of it, no mm -hmm. big deal. Well, I got the refill on the prescription, ate the pills in two days, and told my friends. And they were like, all right, we're done. You're going to rehab. And I was like, I can't go to rehab. And they are like, no, 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 you, you don't have a choice. Like, we're done. This is it. Mm. And um, they... Was it a case like them literally dragging you to... <laughs> it, it, was, it was more like, what am I going to do with my dogs? I don't want to lose my job. And they're like, we'll take care of it all. Don't worry about it. You're good. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And they came and picked me up and drove me to the rehab facility that day. And I get there and, you know, they ask all the intake questions and it's usually like, are you suicidal? Mm. Are you homicidal? And I was preparing to have to stay there. I was like, I'm going to have to do a 30 day inpatient treatment. Um, suicidal, homicidal, are you going through withdrawals? And I was like, no, none of those things. I was like, I was two and a half months sober. I, I, I went through the withdrawals already. I'm good on that. Cause that was the hardest part. And I was like, I went through the withdrawals already. I'm fine. But I messed up and the guy was like, all right, you need to do intensive outpatient. And I was like, all right, mm. cool. Um, and so I did intensive outpatient and got diagnosed with depression and did really well. And at that point, uh, again, still smoking weed, still drinking. I had tried NA before uh, and it didn't work. So uh, I had tried NA, and, like, NA is very shame-based recovery. And so I would go to the NA meeting, and I would sit there, and it would be like, yeah, well, I was doing crack behind this dumpster that I used to live in because, you know, I lost my house, and my wife and my kids left me, and I've got nothing. And I was like, I'm not an addict. I go to work every day. Mm. I take care of my dogs. I pay my bills. Why am I here? It's, like, very... It was different. It was, it was a different type of addiction. You 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 functioned. Right. And the others didn't. Right, and 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 that's what I learned. Um, you know, when I went to this this treatment program, and they do like smart recovery, and it's like I get to set my parameters on what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not mm. comfortable with, and what I do and don't want to do. And so when I went into this, I was like, I just don't understand. I never hit rock bottom, and my counselor. God bless her. She's an angel. She was like, some people, she goes, think of it as an elevator. Some people have to go to the very bottom before they can get off. And some people just have to go down a couple floors. She's like, wherever you got off is good mm. for you. And I was like, that's a great analogy. <laughs> and so I was like, I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to hit the bottom before I realized I could make some changes. And so, you know, when we went in the plan. I went to my first, um, it was intensive outpatient. But I got to do it from home because it was COVID. And so it was three hours each session. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. I'd sit in front of this computer and I would do this rehab session, group therapy, 
about addiction and mental health stuff, and we'd sit here and we'd talk and we'd go through everything. And you set your parameters. She goes, I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do. People have already been trying to control you your whole life. This is your deal. You make that decision. And I was like, cool. I don't want to do pills. I don't want to do coke. I'm still going to drink, and I'm still going to smoke weed. And she was like, okay. And I went to that on a Friday, Monday. So it was Friday night. Mm. said that. That weekend, I go out. I drink with my friends. I start doing coke with my friends. So I come back Monday, and I was like, hey, Crap. <laughs> I, I did coke this weekend. She was like, okay. And I was like, probably a good idea for me to stop drinking. She was like, yeah. And then like a little bit later, I was like, I think I want to start drinking again. And she was like, are you sure? Because the only brook I know that drinks does cocaine. And I was like, you got me there. I'm just going to not <laughs> do that then. So then it became like full abstinence from everything. Uh, just like full stop and how, everything. It and how to. was that for you? Uh, it was it was interesting uh, in the beginning because of my depression and like still having friends that were drinking and doing stuff. Like I felt like I couldn't do a lot of things. I felt kind of excluded and maybe I wouldn't be as much fun as I mm. was before. <laughs> um, you, you felt like which, an outsider. What, yeah, which wasn't the case. It's It's really interesting to me because when I stopped all these things most of my friends stopped them too and so like I stopped doing coke my friends stopped doing coke I stopped taking pills my friends stopped taking pills and so it was like really interesting to see that dynamic and so then like friends that I had that had kids that would never let their kids around me all of a sudden they come over Mm. with their kids and we're going out hiking together and to me, that was, like, worth it all because before I was just like a zombie floating through life, just high all the time, going through mm. the motions, not really living. And then I got sober, and I was like, this is what life is? Like, this is great. And I started, like, developing some really healthy coping skills. And, you know, it, it's been a I'll, – I'll not – like, I'm not going to lie. It's been a difficult 18 months. Like, my grandpa died. My grandma died. My uncle died. A friend of mine died. COVID's been terrible on everybody. Isolating, being home. It was Mm, hard. mm. It was really hard. But everything that I've done has been so rewarding. In the last 18 months, getting sober, I've bought a new car. I've gotten a promotion at work. Like, I've taken a trip, two trips. I went to Hawaii in January, and I went to Salem in October, you know, I'm traveling, I've got more money to do things, I've developed a better relationship with my family, my brother lets his kids come over here and spend the night, like, it's just, everything has changed. Yeah, yeah. And it's been so much rewarding. How how was your your experience with therapy? Did did some of that work involve around trauma? A ton of it. Um, People aren't addicts just because they like drugs. No, uh, they're not. Pe- pe- people are addicts because there's something deeper. Um, and I learned that. And I learned that I had a lot of trauma from past relationships. I went through a lot of that. It was funny because my friend, you know, the one that helped me and was like, what do you want out of life at one point when I was working on getting sober and mm-hmm. I'd been a little sober. She was like, we really need to address your trauma. And I was like, you're funny. I don't have any. Like, <laughs> yeah. So naive. And I, I still, I, jo- I, I still see a therapist. And I joke and I say, man, that, that blissful ignorance, so that's what it was. You're, you're so blissfully unaware and you don't realize that these things cause you to react or act in certain ways. And mm. so, um, the, the, the drugs, like the coping mechanism. That yeah. And that's what it was. Exactly what it was. The, the drugs became my unhealthy coping skill. Mm. And that's what I used to cope with all of this trauma that I didn't understand that I had. And now I recognize and so I have very healthy coping skills that I use to process my trauma and work through it and my triggers and all of that because it's always going to come up. You're inevitably yeah. going to be slapped in the face with something that triggers you. And at that point, it's your job to react in a healthy way. And the only way to do that is to retrain your brain. And with opiates, they do so much damage to your brain and people don't even realize it. Yes, and it takes I didn't time. realize it. Yeah. And, and you know, my, my therapist now she's, she's an angel and she's taught me so much. She's like, yeah, it's going to take 
12 to 24 months before your brain is completely healed. And so mm. you're going to still feel things and have weird reactions and have weird thoughts. And just know it's because your brain is used to doing things a certain way and you've got to retrain it and you've got to let it heal. And so like in that time, I struggled with severe depression and I was on antidepressants. I'm not on them anymore because my mm. brain is healed enough to where I don't feel depressed all the time. You know, I mm. feel a lot better now and it's just, it's easier and it gets easier. It just takes a lot of time and it's yeah, really, yeah. really a difficult thing to do. You know. I think people, when you're taking drugs, you don't, well, you don't think, well, you, you're taking drugs to, to escape. <laughs> it, that's yeah. just the coping mechanism. That's just the coping oh, yeah. skill that you're using. But the effect that it actually has in your brain, because you're giving it so much dopamine at one mm -hmm. time. And yep. when you stop doing that, it's like oh, yeah. looking for more and your and body can't get it. Yeah, and your body can't produce that much dopamine at that nope. <laughs> that fast. Yep. So you get like so it's it's a pretty vicious cycle to say mm, the least. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and when you started working on your trauma with your therapist, did you like how did you take that to start? Were you still is that where you saw some of the pattern from your childhood, the constant pre the cr the pressure that you felt? Yeah, so uh, while I was in rehab, because it was a dual diagnosis treatment program, uh, it addressed addiction and trauma together. Mm. And my counselor at the time, she knew when to push and when to back off. And mm. Mm. at one point, I was talking about something, and I was going off into the story, and she just stopped me and was like, can you just take off the mask for a minute and be real with me? Because I built so many walls that it was hard to let anybody close to understand what was really going on. And her and I started to unpack my trauma. And that's when I learned things about like parenting and how certain things are inadequate parenting. And, you know, she, she approached me and was like, your niece, she's at the time she was three, about to turn mm. four. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, some of the things that happened to you as a kid, how would you feel if they happened to her? And I was like, no that's not okay and she goes <laughs> that's trauma and I was like oh, I get it now so it, taking myself out of it right because I live this every day and I'm so used to I've adapted so much around my trauma and it's shaped who I am as a person that it's just normal to me it's like when people make an off-color joke and everybody's like uh that's not funny like that's not a good thing <laughs> you know uh, it's, it's trauma, but because we've adapted so much around our surroundings and our trauma and how we grew up, we don't see it that way. We just see it like, this is what it, like, it yes. is what it is, man. Yeah. Um, you so just, being... you just, you just think it's normal and you don't, um, yeah, you, you, you don't see the effect it has on people and right. a lot, of, and a lot of the effect it has on people is unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unconscious yeah. effect that they just you're responding to something but that's your trauma responding you just don't know that it's the trauma exactly. response <laughs> yeah. exactly those trauma responses are real yeah. you know and then and people are like you're just an addict <laughs> right and that and that was like hard for me too you know i didn't want to tell my parents because they knew before that i had been an addict and telling my parents like hey guys i have a problem and y'all don't know about it and it's been really really bad mm -hmm. um and I, how did they take I mean, it? It it was difficult at first. My mom doesn't understand addiction because she's never really done drugs in life, so it was really hard for her from the jump. And she was like, "I just don't understand. Why would you do that to yourself?" And I was like, <laughs> yeah. "Look, man, I don't know, but I'm doing it." <laughs> you know. <laughs> and my dad, who's like experimented a little bit more with drugs, is like, you know, it's it runs in your family and you gotta, you gotta just, you gotta stop and you gotta be strong. And I know you can do it. And I'm really proud of you. And you know, they tell me that all the time, which is nice. And, um, it's just nice to, to, to see them understand it and be open to it and mm. open to hearing me out. Like a lot of people, if your kids come up to you and say something like, this is something <laughs> that happened as a kid, 
and this is why it's not okay, they're not going to take that well. I think I said something to my mom about that, like, this is something that happened, and that's not cool, and I gave her the same example, like, how would you like it if the same thing happened to my niece, which is her granddaughter, I'm like, what if, what if that happened with Mia? And she was like, it would never, would never do that to her. I'm like, this is things you did to me as a kid, and you're telling me you wouldn't do to her. And my mom was like, I was a terrible parent. And I was like, you weren't though, mom. You weren't a bad parent. You did the best you could with what you had. And I'm not blaming you for any of this. But this is my trauma that I need to talk to you about and process so I can move on. Mm. So my mom really is so understanding and open to hearing it. And I'm sure it probably drives her crazy that I'm like bringing it up all the time. <laughs> but for me, that's how, yeah, but for me, that's how I process things. And I think mm. for my dad, he gets frustrated because he's like, just let it go and move on. And I'm like, that's not how it works though, dad. If I let it go and just move on, that's me compartmentalizing and not dealing with it. And I did no. that my whole life. So I've been now, doing it already and look what yeah. it took me. <laughs> and so like now if something comes up, I'm like, I'm bringing it to your attention because I was triggered. Something happened to pull this out and make me think about it. And so now he's like, I get it. Okay. okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, they come with trauma. It comes in like you don't get a full whack of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No yeah. It's like, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, certain things trigger certain events. Uh, so you, you you work on one thing and then the next thing comes up and you mm -hmm. can be doing it for the rest of your life it just and but you know just, what that's okay because yeah I, that's I, okay yeah i learned that these are a couple couple things that i think about regularly uh if you're not growing you're dying mm. and growth is hard but we do hard things and so you can either sit there and be complacent and destroy everything you've built, or you can continue to grow and make yourself better. But once you stop growing, that's it. And so I really task myself now to continue to push and that's, grow yeah, and be yeah. better. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm back in school now. That's something I did within the last 18 months. I finally got back in school. Mm. <laughs> you know, I've, I've worked really hard to keep growing and bettering myself every day because I yeah. spent so much time being stagnant and living in addiction that now it's, it's time to work hard for all the things that I want. And I'll never, it's, it's hard work. It really is, but it's, yeah, you have to, you have to want to do it. Uh, Correct. And, and you, you have, have to do it for you, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You have to do it for yourself. And that's how, like, if you get better at things, mm -hmm. you present yourself better. Yeah. And you and know? you show up more. I You know, the yeah. way I show up these days is more intentional. Like I said, hardest work I've ever done, most rewarding work I've ever done in my life. Mm. Yeah. And people see it. People see how different I am. People want to be around me. Mm. You know, it's it's nice. Yes. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. I just I I feel good and I'm happy every day. I wake up every day. You know, stuff's gonna come up, but I wake up every day grateful for what I have and how far I've come because the amount of substance that I was putting into my body, I I should have died plenty of times. I should have died. Mm. Yeah. No, the body has a way of uh, giving the right environment. <laughs> right. It, it has a way to. Uh, recharge itself <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah and honestly it's like scary because everything now all the drugs now have fentanyl in them and it's killing people you know i i it, just it, heard about a friend dying the other day and i called my brother and me and him both had the same response i'm so happy that you're sober because you never know it could have been me i could have died i could have accidentally taken fentanyl thinking it was something else and it could have killed me Mm, mm. Especially the ones you're getting from outside, yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. You know. from the streets, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, you don't know fact, where that's, you, don't you don't know, know what, what's in it. Yeah, you don't know where it's been. You just trust the person because you need it, and yeah, and you don't question it. You're like, I mm. need this right now. I feel like crap. I don't care. I'm gonna take it. Mm. Doesn't mm. matter. And you get desperate, and you ask all the wrong people. Yeah, that's when you get desperate, you do stupid things. Yep. <laughs>
And is addiction a, a big thing over the where you are in your town? In, in the States? Yeah. In, well, uh, in the States, I know it's, I think it's a big thing. <laughs> huge thing. Huge yeah. thing in the States. Um, I, I think it's hard to say if it's a big thing because I think people are really good at hiding it. Yes, um, yes. If I wouldn't have been in active addiction and and doing drugs with so many people, I probably wouldn't have known that so many people were on drugs. Yeah, you just um, think, yeah. Because there's a lot, there's a lot more that goes on where people are functioning and you don't even realize it, man. Mm. Don't even realize it. A lot of people had no idea I had a problem. Um. So yeah. I, I think it's definitely more prevalent than people realize. No, it is. It is. You just, uh, you assume just because someone's not in an alley, they're not an addict. <laughs> yep, and that's just yeah. not the case. Mm. Not the case. Not the case. And uh, what's one thing you're proud of? Oh, man. I'm so proud of my sobriety. Truthfully, it's been the most rewarding thing I've ever done with my life. Mm. It's, 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 if I could say there's one thing that's contributed to all of the great things that have happened in my life, sobriety is it. Because it mm. was the catalyst that got me back in school, got me a promotion at work, got me enough money to buy a new car. You know, it's built my relationships with my friends, rebuilt my relationships with my family, regained that trust from my, you know, people with kids, allow their kids yeah. to be around me. It's it's my sobriety. Yeah. And um, what does well-being mean to you? Uh, there's like a lot of ways of thinking of well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, truthfully, it, it means everything. Because if you don't process and deal with your stuff, and you're not in a good place, whether it be with drugs, mental health, anything like that, you're never going to be happy. Truthfully, you're never, you may trick yourself into thinking you're happy. You may feel happy because that dopamine kicks, but you're never truly going to be happy. You're going to just float through life like a zombie, like I did. And I was convinced I was happy. <laughs> yeah. and I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I thought I was, I wasn't. <laughs> this, yeah. Yeah. No. That's great. That's great. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you good? Well, good now. <laughs> yeah, forgot that we had another. We done another clip like prior to this. That froze. No, I think, that's okay. Yeah, I'll be putting the two of them together. I'll be good. I'm um, excited. Yeah. So no, thank you very much. I know it's only lunchtime for you, but it's like <laughs> bedtime for you. <laughs> Twenty past eight. <laughs> If you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a quick review on my Facebook page, Don't Be Afraid to Talk, or DM me on Instagram. The show notes will include all the relevant links from today's episode. If you haven't already, please download, leave a rating, and share with your friends. You might just reach the person who needs to hear this message. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. I am James Lumumba, signing off with gratitude.